So Money episode 497, Ask Farnoosh. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. You're listening to So Money, everyone. Welcome back. Happy Friday, November 18th, 2016. And I think if you had listened to last Friday's episode, we were fresh off the verdict uh, from the election. And because I had recorded that prior to the election, people were writing in saying, oh, I'm, I'm so sad listening to this episode because I was probably pretty hopeful still <laughs> when I was recording that episode, not ever thinking that I would wake up on Wednesday morning and like many of you with the outcome that we had. But here we are all in one piece still, hopefully, and just happy that you're spending some time with us here now and not to just dwell on this too much or, but I just thought that I would, I owe it to you guys to say that, you know, you may have noticed that I was pretty quiet the few days after the election. And I just honestly couldn't bring myself to get online or watch TV or I just felt I was on the receiving end of emails and tweets. um, In some cases that I just felt were inappropriate. Like I just felt there was a time to sort of be silent, you know, there's really nothing that we can say. And I, some of you might be Trump supporters. And so, you know, I guess you can mute me right now, but I was just not feeling an an urge to really get out there and be active and vocal. I just wanted to collect my thoughts. And Sophia, you're here with me. Um, It was, it was a quiet week, I guess, because it was, what, what can you say? There's not much to say. (laughs) And, and I, I was annoyed too, because I was getting emails and I was reading articles, the very little time that I was spending online, I would see things that were trying to kind of gain on the news, like 10 ways you can, you know, deal with your money now that the market is volatile or what a Trump presidency means for the job market. And I'm like, I just don't want to even get I'm not there yet. (laughs) I'm not there yet. And I don't want to be consuming that right now. I just feel like I need to just sit in a room and maybe that's my coping mechanism and that's just me. But that was why uh, you didn't get an email from me last week. If you're on the email list, you probably didn't see me tweeting that much other than just, you know, talking about the show. In fact, one person wrote in to me on Twitter, actually at the end of Wednesday night and was like, Farnoosh, are you there? (laughs) (laughs) What do you think? And I wrote back to her. It was a private kind of one-on-one tweet. And I just said, you know, I feel for the parents out there who have older children who are in grade school, who are confused, who are scared. I have had spoken to some friends who are really dealing with some serious emotional trauma with their kids, kids crying, kids scared. Are we going to be okay? And I was just saying, you know, my heart goes out to those parents. That's really the, the only thing I shared on online regarding the election and thinking of my own life as in my own role as a mom. I feel so relieved that Evan is too young to really understand what just happened and what the next four years were really, hopefully, you know, I'm going to be optimistic, but you know, from what we can tell, it's not going to be a fun ride for many people. I'm just happy that I have to, I can skirt that conversation with him (laughs) and my future daughter, you know, she's going to be way too little to really get it. But 
That doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of work cut out for us. If anything, that this this verdict has encouraged you and I both to really become more committed to volunteering. We actually here at Farnoosh Inc., Sophie and I, uh, <laughs> I consider all of us a part of the community, but she and I are really the two that are behind the scenes working day in and day out. I was like, you know what? Let's just dedicate a week, a day, a month, whatever it is to service and we can pick our own projects or we can pick one together, whatever. But I think it's important to really be more proactive and conscious about that because here we are, it's November and I look back at my volunteering track record this year and I'm sad to say I didn't do much volunteering that really counted. So I want to do that and give back and donate to the charities that will need our help the most over the next four years because they might get sidelined. And, you know, just commit to being a, a helpful, caring, loving citizen. And that's, I think, it's something we can all do. Definitely. And so that's, that's been my move come to Jesus <laughs> after all of this. But anyway, just wanted to give you guys a sense of where we are at after all this election brouhaha and it's only begun. But we're curious to also hear your thoughts. I know that, that they, this sort of scenario can create, elicit a lot of uncertainty and fear and worry and just curiosity. And we should talk about it. I won't have all the answers, but I think it's healthy for us to just get our thoughts out there and air them and clear the air a little bit. So, you know, use that Ask Farnoosh button at So Money Podcast for venting, even if you want. And can't promise it's going to make the air, but we, <laughs> I think if that can be a tool for you to let off some steam, then so be it. Exactly. And I think if we learned anything this past week, it's that both sides, regardless of what side you're on, we both have some listening we have to do. Yes. So I do think that living in New York, I admit, I, I live in a bubble. I live in Brooklyn, like one of the most liberal parts of the world. And I suppose I took for granted that most people feel the way that I do. And actually, I mean, if you look at the way people voted, more people voted for Hillary than for Trump. That's a whole other episode. But I think <laughs> that you're right. There's a big percentage of this country that's upset, that feels unheard. You know, that is important to recognize and embrace to some extent. But hopefully we can all do it respectfully and peacefully. That's really, I mean, opposition has been a part of our history forever. People have differences, but it's how this election has really brought out the vitriol that's scary, that it's really hard for people to imagine these two sides coming together and finding common ground or finding any way to compromise. But hopefully we will. We are a country that has gone through worse and we will persevere, I hope. Anywho, let's go to the questions. I, I didn't even get to my so many moment of the week. <laughs> I didn't actually had one. I, uh, I bought a car, ladies and gentlemen. Woohoo! Yeah. <laughs> I'm not very practiced at buying cars. I have bought two cars in my entire life. This is now the second and, or maybe three, I guess two and a half, three, because I bought one off my parents and that doesn't really count. Because like really what I think of buying a car, I get anxious, I get nervous. I have to go to the dealership. There's that whole dance. It's like your whole day. It's exhausting. But Tim and I went yesterday to the Volvo dealership in Manhattan. We were curious to learn more about this. It's called the XC90. It's an SUV. And we were looking at some pre-owned models, which were cool. But then I learned that like the pre-owned models that they had in inventory, which wasn't many, there were two, you know, they had some dings and they were only like a few thousand dollars less than a brand new one. So we just figured let's splurge on the brand new and then we can get the color and the finish and the detail that we want. We can get the packages that we want. And believe it or not, I almost was convinced to lease, which I would, I, I mean, my husband's looking at me like, you 
I mean, you better not tell anyone that you're going to lease because, <laughs> you know, that goes against everything we've learned in the personal finance books. But I, I, I listened to her, the woman, I heard her out and she gave some pretty compelling points as to why leasing might make sense for our family. And she said, because, you know, you don't drive that much. We really don't. We, in two years, we put on our other car, we put like less than 15,000 miles. So we drive very little. And so the wear and tear wouldn't be that much. And, you know, it's something that, uh, and what was the other reason she said? She said, just said like the, the, I think just like interest rates are so low, like financing would be so relatively inexpensive, I suppose, in big air quotes. But I said to her, you know, ultimately I get, I get what you're saying, but I don't want to be looking for a new car every three years. Like uh, <laughs> if I can avoid coming into a dealership for the next 10 years, that's good for me. <laughs> we are low maintenance people like that. And she just like laughs She's like, yeah, I, I, I feel you. So, but we did end up financing it only because we could have paid all cash, but I just felt like it's important to stay as liquid as possible right now with our savings, not knowing what's ahead in the next six months to a year. And I mean, what will happen as a result of the new regime and... I also felt that interest rates were so low right now. I mean, they're offering us 2% on this car loan and that's really, really good and it's fixed. And I don't assume that I will maintain this loan for the duration, like the four years or the five years. I'll probably pay it off in a year just because I'm I'm freaky deaky like that. Like I like to just not have debt. But I think for the time being, it's comforting to know that you're not putting all this money down on a car and in that's money you're never going to see again. So we did that, which I didn't think I would do. But I'm, I'm learning that sometimes you just have to also factor in your environment, what's going on, what you need. And, you know, cash is always king, but believe it or not, cash, the dealership is not king. And we actually got a little bit of a discount because we wanted to finance. That was the other perk because they want to work with the banks. They want us to work with the banks. The banks want to lend. So we were able to knock down the price of the car a little bit. Whereas if I just threw cash in their face, they would have been like, they wouldn't have... (laughs) blinked. You know, it's not a big deal to them to to get cash. They want to lend you the money. They want to own you. So I, you know, conceded, but was able to, I think at the end of the day, get the best deal that works for us. So there you have it. Farnoosh Tarabi on the record for financing <laughs> a car when she full well could have put cash down. But again, my intent is to pay it off within the year. Like in the meantime, you know, have some breathing room, some flexibility. All right. That, I promise, is my last anecdote before we now get to the Ask Farnoosh questions. And we have a question, Sophia, from Christopher, who is having a hard time getting a student loan. Yeah. Right? So he didn't share too much with us about his age, where he is in his life. But he did say that, he, as you mentioned, he's having trouble securing a private loan to put towards a college education because he doesn't have a very good credit score right now. He also doesn't have anyone to commit to co-signing a loan for him. And he's also no longer eligible to apply for federal student loans. So he's not sure what he should do. I I wish he'd given us more information because I I don't know, is he in the middle of his program at school? Is he about to start college? Is he older, younger? I'm going to assume he's just of college age and maybe this is his first year in school. It surprises me that he can't find a private loan because true, you do need some credit to get credit. (laughs) It's kind of like, you know, one has to happen before the other. But when you're young, they can't assume that you have like a robust credit score. So 
You know, I think that he should maybe continue his search for a private loan. Look at credit unions and community banks. They are a little bit more lenient to people who are more novice borrowers and people who don't have huge track records when it comes to borrowing and credit. That would be one thing to do. The other thing is to speak to your school. So if you already know where you're going to college, definitely go in person to the bursar's office the call or, or the financial aid office. Talk to, if you know what your major is going to be or your concentration, talk to the department head at your school because sometimes they may have financial aid programs or scholarships or grants specific to students who are going on a particular track of study that you would only learn by asking about. So you need to maybe take the extra step and get really in there, you know, and and go and just poke around and see what's available. I'm not sorry that no one wants to co-sign with him because I don't think that's a good idea for anyone really to do in general, you know, co-sign on a loan or a credit card with someone who doesn't have a credit history. And it's very risky. And rather, let the banks take that risk. <laughs> don't let don't make individuals or your parents take on that risk. The other thing he could do is delay going to school for a year and working and establishing some credit worth opening up a, a secured card and so that he will be more eligible for a traditional loan in the next year or going part-time. You know, again, not knowing his specific circumstance, can't say specifically what I would do or would suggest, but these are all things to consider, Christopher. And the good news is, is that I firmly believe you will be able to get that education And I know you're facing some headwinds right now financially, but there's always a way. There is always a way. And if you listen to some of the interviews that we've had with people, gosh, Joya Das is one example. If you listen to her episode, she was in college and her parents just cut her off and they wouldn't pay for her tuition anymore. So she literally faced a very short window of time where she had to come up with a whole semester, a year's worth of money to continue taking her courses or somehow, you know, quitting, I guess, but she's not a quitter and she believed there was a way. So she found a way. And you have, I'm going to tease that episode for you. Listen to that for inspiration. It's Joya Das. She's a financial reporter. I think that her situation was far more extreme because it was something that happened to her sort of in the midst of school. Her parents, for you know whatever reason, just cut her off. She was at this crossroads. Do I drop out or do I just do whatever? I mean, and really, what do you do when you have like two weeks until your your bill is due? So listen to that episode and hopefully that will inspire you. And thanks for your question. Let us know what happens. People, you're not letting us know what happens. <laughs> you're leaving us totally on the, you know, these cliffhangers, right? Like, <laughs> I want to know. I want to be able to share your progress or your, you know, just next steps with our listeners and maybe we can help. Just about every investment and retirement plan is created by men for men, which is fine, unless you're a woman. Women still earn less than men, for now. We're more aware of risk, we're more likely than men to pause our careers to raise a family, and unfortunately, we typically retire with less wealth than men, even though statistics show that we live longer. That's why there's Elevest, created for women, run by and designed by women. Elevest helps women invest based on their specific goals, like buying a home, starting a business, raising a family, or just retiring like a boss. So Money listeners can visit elevest.com slash so money and have an investment plan created at no cost, customized to your specific goals. Invest like a woman with Elevest. 
E-L-L-E-V-E-S-T. That's LLVEST.com slash so money. All right, Laura, question about her goddaughter and what to gift her? Yeah, so I feel like this is becoming a question that we're starting to see more of, which I think is great. But she's going to be the godmother to her best friend's firstborn. And instead of purchasing just a normal standard christening gift, she's kind of thinking of maybe doing something that will help her goddaughter in the long run, like maybe purchasing a share of a Vanguard fund. So she wants to know if you think it's a good idea, if you have a suggested fund. Well, I don't really have any specific suggestions. That's not my department. I'm not an expert in that. But I will say that for what you're looking to do specifically, there are some sites out there that can facilitate. And one is called sparkgift.com. And they've actually just gotten acquired by Stockpile. I'm on their website now. And basically what they do is they let you buy two kinds of gift cards. And either it's an e-gift card or a physical gift card for the purposes of gifting stocks. And I'm on their website net right now and they've got, you can choose from virtually like any stock. They also have Vanguard funds and you can send the gift immediately or I guess maybe print out kind of like a cool certificate or they will also send you, I think it sounds like they'll send you a physical gift card in the mail. And so that's pretty cool. And I'm sure there are others that compete with this site. So do a little bit of searching around. This sounds like really cool and how awesome, again, that you want to do this. I think that's a great long-term gift. And, you know, because I, if I were you, because this isn't like something that she's going to put in her memento box, you know, or, you know, sometimes like at a christening and it's your godmother, you want something that she can hold and touch and cherish and maybe pass down. So maybe you could, what you could do is get her a beautiful frame or you could, you know, get her some sort of, I don't know, keepsake along with this piece of paper stock or gift card, just so that she has something to hold on to uh, as she gets older in memory of, you know, the gift that my godmother gave me just more of as a a sentiment. But, you know, definitely, I think going this route with the Vanguard fund or whatever stock you choose is, is very cool. And something too, that as she gets older, you can remind her about, and it can create more conversations and discussions around money. How beautiful is that? So I love that. I think I'm going to I'm not a godmother. <laughs> I'm not an aunt yet, but I will be in uh, in the spring. My sister-in-law is expecting, so maybe this is something that we can, you know, gift them. That sounds pretty cool. All it right, does. this person has this person has a really cool name, Brigham. I know, I love that name. I've never, I know Brigham and Young. <laughs> University, but I've never heard, I've never met anyone named Brigham. Welcome to the show, Brigham. (laughs) Well, he wants to know what you think about travel hacking, which is also known as credit card churning, and how that might impact credit because recently he's gotten into the habit. And he also wants to know how if he closes a card, how it might ultimately impact his score. Right now, his score is at an 800. Okay. You know, uh, people do this. And uh, there's one guy that got really famous from doing it. Uh, I think he's his name is the travel guy or the travel rewards guy or something. I don't know. But he basically started a site that talked all about how he's hacked the quote unquote, you know, travel card system. And he would basically do what Brigham is thinking about, which is gaining on all of these travel rewards cards that say, you know, open up a card, we'll give you an instant 25,000 miles or whatever it is. And so you've instantly gotten a free trip out of it or half a trip. And then you'd keep doing this every time you want to travel. So you basically, your travel expenses go to nil, but you never really use the cards later. And then you can end up canceling them or just letting them go idle. 
Look, I think that you need to keep in mind the very important fact that when you apply for credit, the issuer, the bank, the card company will do a hard inquiry on your credit report. And one hard inquiry is not the end of the world, but multiple hard inquiries, especially in a short period of time, can impact your score, can negatively impact your score. By how much? It's not clear. It's not the same as like not paying your bills. It's not as severe, but it's just, you know, it's something to keep in mind. If you want to maintain your pristine 800 credit score and you go and you open up multiple credit cards at the same time and then you shut them off, I think that can potentially lower your score. I'm not going to say by how much, but it's not going to remain at 800. But then again, you have to think about the benefits to doing this. You're going to get all these free trips potentially, you know, bonus miles, et cetera, et cetera. So it's up to you to really weigh the pros and cons of this, but it's not to say that you're going to do this and your credit score will go unscathed. I think that there's a potential for it to drop because when you apply for cards, those hard inquiries can negatively impact your score. Plus, when you close the cards later, that credit limit will no longer be available to you. And that does raise potentially your debt to credit ratio, assuming you have any balance on these cards or other cards. So just keep that in mind. But people do this, Sophia, because they're just, they got their eye on the prize. <laughs> you know, they want to, they want to make as much free money or free trips as possible. And I wouldn't do this at all <laughs> if you were in the market for like a really substantial loan, a mortgage, a student loan, a car loan, because this will be reflected in your credit score, your credit report. And if someone that you care about that, that matters is going to be looking at your credit report, credit score to determine your eligibility for something that you actually really want, then that could work against you. So keep all that in mind, Brigham. And uh, let us know again how this all works out for you. Definitely. All right. I think... But in terms of, I agree with what you said, but also I think you have to be pretty skilled, I think, to handle, you know, a large number of credit cards at once. I think for me, it would be too yeah, many. that's a good point. I would be, it would be too much juggling for, for me. I like to have my, my three credit cards that I have and, and that's it. <laughs> three. I have three. That's even more. I think I have two. I well, have, actually, I have three, but I don't really use one. I just opened yeah, that's I how thought I, I would. It was actually a travel rewards card that I was like all excited about because I was going to do all this traveling last year. And I thought, let me just open this and try to get some points or something. But I never ended up using it. And it's still open. And the benefit of it, actually, there was still a benefit to it because it came with like a $30,000 limit. Wow. Yeah. It boosted my credit score because, you know, now I have more credit in my name and I look like I'm just more credit worthy. <laughs> but that's a good point. Having so many cards, it's that in and of itself can create a little bit of havoc. I would not be skilled enough. <laughs> no. And then, you know, you got to be on top of all that. It takes time. So, you know, if, if this is like, you consider this a sport <laughs> and you're really going to like be attentive to it, I hope it works out for you. All right. So we have a question from Sherry and she worked in banking. She owns a home and she kind of found that her job before was unfulfilling. So she switched to a new job, took a pay cut, and now she's really not able to maintain and keep up with that previous lifestyle that she had under the banking job. And mm -hmm. so ultimately, she's finding it difficult to meet her credit card payments. And now she's wondering if maybe she should stick to a debit card or cash while she's sorting everything out. And she's also just having difficulty on getting over this lifestyle change. 
Well, bravo for changing jobs because I think it's really hard sometimes to let go of a quote unquote good life that you get accustomed to, even though the job that that is affording the good life is making you miserable. I know a lot of people like that. They just stay in the job because it pays the bills. They can do the traveling that they want. They can go to the nice restaurants, but ultimately, you know, from eight to six when they're working. And then of course you come home and your work is still on your mind. They're not happy. No. And sometimes some of these jobs are really demanding and it's even more than just eight to six and you're making all that money and you can't even really enjoy it. Right. And you know, just a sidebar, what was really funny is the New York, New York magazine years ago did these profiles of people in New York City with different jobs and how they spend. I thought it was so cool. And the woman who worked at Goldman Sachs, who traveled all the time and had all of her expenses covered and made a fat, fat, fat salary (laughs) had... She had at the end of the month, her expenses were the were the smallest because wow. everything was paid for. It was ironic. Then the teacher who made like so little, right? She was in debt. She couldn't pay for her bills. And it wasn't like she was going out every night. You know, it was just the sad thing about, I guess, you know, sometimes it's just a choice, like where you work, it ends up affording you a certain lifestyle or it doesn't. But anyway, I think with Sherry, there's a few things going on, right? So I think that she needs to remember why she left that job and find fulfillment in that again, you know, or, or, really know that, Sherry, you're you're in a better place. And I know that it's hard to let go of some of the things that you're used to, like the nice dinners and traveling out and the shopping. But that was the trade-off that you made with yourself when you decided to take this job with the pay cut. And really what the question is, I think, is what actually makes me happier? You can't be happy with everything, right? You have to kind of focus on where you're going to derive your happiness from. Because if you just assume that everything should make you happy, well, you're going to live a disappointed life that, you know, you should identify the aspects and areas in life that you want to source your happiness from and just focus on that. It sounds like with your career, you've focused on that. You've found a job that is now a source of happiness for you, a better source of happiness. Now you're struggling with the lifestyle aspect, the lifestyle component. But I think that here too, it's time to make some trade-offs and adjustments because certainly you can't have it all on a limited income. And so I would say instead pick the two things instead of the six things that maybe you were accustomed to that you want to maintain. You're going to be smarter about those purchases and you're going to put the rest to the side. So you really have to do a kind of an inventory overhaul of how you've been spending your money and where you think you're deriving your happiness from in terms of your expenditures. And as we know, stuff doesn't make us happy right? Experiences do. I would bet, Sophia, that even if she had the same amount of money and she was eating out and traveling and shopping and and all that, (laughs) she might not be happy still at the end of the day. No, I agree. Because you don't get get long-term happiness from stuff. No. And if I were you, like the traveling and maybe the dining out to an extent, because that's kind of an experience if you do it with friends and you you do it in moderation, (laughs) (laughs) could be something where your money is well invested because it's there's a social aspect to it and there's memories that you can build. So it's about being really selective about your lifestyle now and being choosy. And think of it like that because that I think that's empowering when you think of it like that. You know, I actually have the ability to focus on what's important to me now. And as far as your credit card balance, you know, this is this is the the universe telling you you need to make a change. You cannot <laughs> pay your bills. So then you need to, for the next, however long it takes, I agree with you, Sherry, stick to a cash or debit existence. And that way you no longer continue this cycle of debt. And then once you're out of that, 
it's going back to what I said earlier, which is really committing now to a, a shift in your lifestyle where you have made the conscious choice to just focus on two things, two areas of your life or three areas of your life that you're like, this is what makes me happy. This is what I'm going to invest my money in. And that's it. Everything else to the wayside. And if I get a raise or if I make more money, then we can revisit this. And But speaking of making more money, you could do that too. Maybe not in the existing job that you have, but how often do we talk on this show and even from we pull from our own lives that we are able to make money on the side through side gigs, hustling, you know, part-time jobs, freelance jobs. So look into that because not necessarily so you can go on a shopping spree, <laughs> but because there are always ways to reinvest that money in yourself, in others. I encourage everybody to go out there and make as much money as they can. You deserve it. You deserve to do that but still be smart about how you're spending that money and how you're allocating that money. And I think that that could be good for you as well. All right. I agree. And I think I would add to, especially when you undergo like a lifestyle change like this, I mean, you also just have to reprioritize things. And I think, you know, hopefully one day as you start to make more money, whether that's incorporating something on the side or you get a raise, like you had mentioned, you know, you can add another priority to the list. But, you know, you start small, you can start like for me, I know that I love to spend money on working out because nothing makes me feel better than knowing that I'm keeping myself in shape and keeping myself healthy. So for me, that's one of my top priorities. And then just kind of like you said, experiences like, dining out with friends, things like that. And when you do start to make a little bit more money, you know, obviously you focus on making sure that you're paying off your debt if you have any and putting aside money for your savings, this and that. But you can start to hopefully add in a third priority or a fourth priority. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, especially it gives you something to work towards too, because if you have it all now, what's there to look forward to? So hopefully... You just kind of look to the future and and say, one day I'll be able to have, you know, five top priorities and be able to afford all of those. Yeah. And those priorities, um, that's exciting to think about and plan for. Like you said, it's good to have goals. And it's not always like my priority is to be able to afford that Fendi bag. Right. (laughs) You know, but maybe I could donate more this year or I can take that class that's going to help me get to the next level in my career. I can take that trip to India, you know, and go meditate for a month because that's going to be healthy and important for me. So thinking broad and big and, and in terms of service and reinvestment in yourself, I think those are such always the best ways to spend your money. Marielle (laughs) has a question, a technical question about like robo advisors. Yeah. So she loved our second interview with Rick Edelman. And she said that she's done some investigating on her own about robo advisors. And she says she realized that they're not FDIC insured. So she wants to know this is something to be concerned about. And Mm -hmm. are human financial advisors FDIC insured? Okay, this is a great question. This kind of like prompts us to talk about a very definitive thing that goes on in the world of finance. And yes, it's true that wherever you're banking, as far as checking, savings, CDs, things like that, that the bank, like whether it's a Bank of America or a Chase or a community bank or a credit union, that this bank is FDIC insured, which means that up to $250,000, all your accounts added up, you will 
be guaranteed that that money will not disappear, <laughs> basically. And this became this actually this uh, this insurance coverage was raised during the recession. I believe it was a hundred thousand dollars in like pre two thousand eight. Now banks have raised that to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars because they want to you know really just uh, calm any fears about bank runs or banks collapsing and then not being able to produce the money that you have put in there as savings or checking or whatever. When it comes to brokerage accounts, invested dollars, that does not fall under FDIC insurance. That's a whole different uh, jurisdiction, essentially. And that is the SIPC, Securities Investor Protection Corporation. All right. So you can go to SIPC.org. And this is basically like the FDIC, but for brokerage firms and brokerage accounts. And Basically, what this insurance does, insurance from this organization provides, is the peace of mind that if a brokerage firm, wherever your money is invested in like stocks and mutual funds, collapses or, I don't know, has a technical glitch where the money like for 24 hours like disappears or their website crashes or or they that bank itself was committing fraud. Um, nothing to do with market fluctuations, but anything other than that, other than market fluctuations, your money is protected. Again, up to $250,000. So what SIPC protects is against the loss of cash and securities, stocks, bonds held at brokerage firms. So that is what you want to look for wherever you're putting your money that's going to be invested in stocks and bonds. The limit for SIPC protection is actually half a million dollars. And that includes $250,000 limit for cash. So this protects you in the event that, let's say, the brokerage goes under, the brokerage is accused of fraudulent activity uh, or you know, gosh, there's a technical glitch or a crash and you can't like, you're worried that the bank lost all your money. This does not protect you just really to be clear. If the market crashes and you lose all your money, that is the risk. Of course, in investing, there's no guarantee that you're going to open up a brokerage account, put money in and 10 years later, it'll have grown or it'll be there at all. That's the risk. But if, if there's an issue where the bank, is responsible for that money going missing or that money disappearing or that money being devalued, you are protected by SIPC insurance. And yes, robo-advisors have this, should have this. And if they don't, run. (laughs) And financial advisors who work with brokerage accounts, that insurance is in place as well. But not not to say that you can sue your financial advisor but you can go after you know, the brokerage account where they're keeping your money. And many financial advisors do work with the sometimes robo-advisors, sometimes the brick-and-mortar brokerage accounts. Uh, but good questions to also ask your financial advisor. What happens if there is a bank run? What happens if you know we have another Lehman Brothers? What happens to my money? And they'll probably tell you what I'm telling you, which is that, well, your money is in these brokerage accounts where there's SIPC insurance and your money is protected up to half a million dollars in assets that's held there. Um, And if you want more information, just go to SIPC.org. Great question, because I think it clears up a little bit of confusion as far as how the different financial institutions protect our dollars. And then I want to go to social media because we have this really cool question from Twitter and we'll end here. (laughs) And yeah, and I actually know this person well, and I responded to her on Twitter, but I thought, what a great question to ask Farnoosh. So take it away, Sophia. 
So it comes from our friend Broke Millennial, and it's actually on behalf of one of her friends. And so she says, your boss invites you to his fiance's birthday dinner, and you don't know her very well. You think that the meal will ultimately run you about $150. Do you go? All right. This is not rocket science, people. <laughs> I'm absolutely not. I agree. <laughs> My actual answer was, well, how much do you care about the relationship that you have with this boss? Do you feel that this would actually lead to your advancement at, at work? And I mean, that's it's still even a terrible way to think about it because like you don't want to buy your way to a raise, right? Or like, you know, like kiss your boss's ass to that extent. <laughs> but that's what people do. And if you're in for that game and haul, you know, whatever. But I honestly, I feel like 99% of the time I'd say absolutely not. Why? One, it's $150. That's ridiculous. Uh, If this was like, yeah, I feel like, well, you need to be warned about that, you know, and that needs to come with some time to save. I mean, like, what kind of meal are we talking about here? Second, you don't know this person, you know, you know, your boss, but you don't know this you don't know his girlfriend or fiance. So that's going to be awkward. And that's sort of like weird that he's inviting his work. Like, doesn't she have friends? You know, <laughs> so weird. <laughs> well, Third, like, on top of that, do you have to get her a gift for uh, someone you please. don't know? <laughs> no, that's just silly. And then he, as her fiance, if he's going to propose an, like, an outing and inviting people that don't know the fiance and then expecting them to put like $100, $150 towards a meal, like if you're going to do that, you should pay. I, I feel agree. that's, no, you should host. Especially not- I would assume if he's your boss, he's making more money than you. Yes, so of you course. Would think- you know, it's kind of on him to to really take the reins and treat everyone to a nice meal. I wonder if there's more to this than we really know. You know, I wonder, I think she's assuming a lot. Maybe I'm going to give the boss the benefit of the doubt Yeah, (laughs) and say that he's invited them, he's going to pay for them, and it's not going to be $150. It's it's not going to be awkward. I don't know. But I just based on that tweet, I was like, hell no. (laughs) Even if it means... I, and I'm sure that your colleagues, and I assume they were invited, are not going to go either. And maybe you guys can all get together and decide as a group, like, let's let's maybe what you could do is, hey, here's what I actually thought too would be kind of a way to work around it is to say, are you going to drinks or are you going to go somewhere after dinner? You know, come up with some excuse as to why you can't make the dinner portion. Definitely. But you could always say, hey, I'd love to buy her a drink that, you know, if you guys are meeting up for a cocktail somewhere before dinner, but I really can't do the dinner and, or how about dessert? Or is, are you guys going somewhere for dessert? Or are you going to a bar later? Then that takes the pressure off you to have to put up all that money, but you're also showing respect, I suppose, for your boss and his, his beloved. And that's one way to kind of, uh, you know, manage that situation. But, um, I love these kinds of questions cause there's no, you can't Google this. <laughs> Got to come to ask Farnoosh. Always. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's a wrap everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in and sticking with the show. We have next Friday's episode, which is going to be episode 500. Yeah. And we've got some fun things uh, planned for you for that episode. So make sure you tune back for that one. And of course, I hope you have a great weekend. See you back here on Monday when our guest is Barry Tesler. Barry Tesler. Ooh, she's good. (laughs) She is a financial therapist and has been for, I think she's one of the founding uh, mothers, uh, I suppose we can say, of 
financial therapy. She's been doing it for a long time. She has a new book out. She's a lovely, amazing human. And I think that uh, it'll be a great way to kick off our week and more. We need more of this stuff, you know, on the show. I'm dedicating the show to speaking to more people who have uplifting messages, women, especially too, and men. But, you know, I think that we need to, we need to address the deficit. Definitely. <laughs> and so if you've got a great story to share, write us in. Um, we have, well, obviously love hearing from everyday people as well. All right. That's a wrap, everyone. Hope your weekend is so money. Money.